The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. As you know, this is uh, Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, in which we celebrate once a year about the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate every week. Uh, if, you read the, if you read the book of Acts, you might be surprised to find out that just about almost every single sermon in the book of Acts is about the resurrection of Christ. It's what the apostles preached, because it's absolutely a necessity that Christ be raised from the dead in order for us to have salvation. Um, and so this is, this is good news, that Jesus Christ is a risen, resurrected Christ. So if you will turn with me to Luke 24, this is the last chapter in the book of Luke. Wow, this has been, I think it's taken us a little over a year to get through Luke. And here we arrive perfectly at the resurrection chapter on Resurrection Day. And so we want to we look at what happened to this crucified Christ who has become the resurrected Christ. One of the things that's really striking about this chapter is that none of his disciples expected him to be raised from the dead. And they're the ones that he told over and over and over again that he was going to be arrested, beaten, mocked, spit upon, and crucified. And three days later, he would rise from the dead. But the text every time says they didn't understand what he was saying. Have you ever been like that? Where uh, you, you read something in the Word and... You, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. And then someday, at some point, you're reading the Word and all of a sudden it jumps out at you like you'd never seen it before. That happened to me with uh, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, about the fact that uh, every believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. And apart from the Holy Spirit, you could not be a believer. You couldn't be a follower of Christ. But he's given all of us the Holy Spirit. And so we're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now... Um, Back in Luke 18, we saw Jesus tell them that they, he was going to be arrested, mocked, spit upon, and three days later he would, be, he would be raised from the dead. But it's obvious they didn't get it because he's crucified, and yet they are surprised to find out that he has been raised from the dead. Now, that's, that's not hard to understand because when was the last time you saw a person raised from the dead? Maybe you know somebody that looks like they were raised from the dead, but um, Jesus was raised from the dead, and it wasn't because they believed that he was going to be. It was because God promised, and that's exactly what God did. And uh, even before the, the Jesus was born, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied his resurrection. But for some reason, we come to this chapter, we see what happens. We're going to see the resurrected Christ in four different scenes in this chapter. The first scene is he's missing from the tomb. I want to go back a little bit into chapter 23 just so you get the context. In, verse, in chapter 23, verse 50, notice this. Luke 23, verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, was a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan that, and action, that is to arrest and crucify Christ. He was a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is after the crucifixion. He's still hanging on the cross. So, so he goes and he asks Pilate if he could take his body. This Joseph is obviously a rich man. He has a tomb, 
and, and no one's ever been laid in it. And so he wants to take the body of Jesus. And so it says, this man went to Pilate. He asked him for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, took down the body of Christ. And he wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock, which no one had ever lain. So this had been an unused tomb probably that, that he had created for himself. And so he gets the body. He lays him in this tomb. It was the preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. As I said before, the Sabbath began at sundown. In fact, this was the way their calendar worked. The day started on sundown of yesterday. So sundown yesterday would have been the beginning of the Lord's day for us. And so it's before the sun goes down, it says the women who had come with him out of Galilee, that had come with Jesus out of Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, where he was, Because they wanted to take care of him. And listen to what it says. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, when the Sabbath started, it says they rested according to the commandment. Now what we're going to see are these four different scenes where we see the resurrected Christ. The first is found in verses 1 through 12. And we see Jesus at not being, we see Jesus missing at his tomb. Because notice what happens. But on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They're going to prepare his body for burial. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. We assume these are angels. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? In fact, my translation says, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? I remember saying this to my wife one time. I'm sure she's forgotten, but we had visited this church up in Idaho, and I'd never been in a church where people looked so unhappy. I mean, they they really, it looked like a funeral had taken place or something, and it hadn't. They were there to worship, but they were all long-faced. They didn't greet you. They didn't talk to you. It was just a meeting, a church meeting, in which uh, it looked like a bunch of people that were very, very sad. And I remember as we walked out of the church, I said to her, why do we seek the living among the dead? Because that's what it was like. You know, Christians, in the early church from... The beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost until 300 A.D., churches met in homes. Here's a great benefit of meeting in homes. One is you don't have to have a big master plan for the service. Uh, You come together in a home. This is what they did. They came together. They ate a meal together. They prayed together. They prayed for one another. Uh, They worshiped. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, which means they discussed the teachings of the apostles together, and perhaps someone taught, and then they prayed for needs and so forth, and they talked about how they could serve one another and how they could serve Christ. It's a crazy, crazy kind of thing for us to think about how it worked in the first, the first, the early church, because what they did was this was the basic plan: give all you have. And take only what you need. Is that crazy? If I said to you, we're going to start a new plan in this church, you're going to give all that you have, and you just take what you need. 
It's really quiet, isn't it? (laughs) That's what they did. And what happened was they didn't have any evangelistic programs. They didn't have evangelism classes that they taught people how to share the gospel. They simply lived as disciples of Jesus Christ, and people wanted to know what in the world was going on with these people. And so they might come and join them in one of these, these meetings and hear the gospel. And they saw something in the lives of these Christians that totally surprised them. Because they were walking, they were having fellowship with Jesus, and their lives were being changed radically. Now notice this in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them, dazzling clothes, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? Remember when they were in Galilee? We went through that section where all, all of his disciples were from Galilee. They had accents. That's the way people could tell that they were disciples of Jesus because they spoke like people from Galilee. It was kind of like saying, you're from the Ozarks, aren't you? I can tell by your accent. I used to try to figure out whether a person was from Tennessee or Arkansas, and it was kind of hard to tell for me, for me to tell the difference. But there is a difference. And so when he was in Galilee, he says, don't you remember what he said to you? He said that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third days rise again. Do you understand those words? That he would be crucified and on the third day he would raise from the dead. Do those words make sense to you? Sure. Because that happened 1885 years ago, 1985 years ago, something like that. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. So it's past history for us. But for them, he was telling them something they had never seen and never even imagined. That he was going to be raised from the dead. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. When the angel reminded them of what he said, they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That is, all the disciples. Now, they were Mary Magdalene. This is, these are who the women are that came to address his body. They were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. That is, James the Lesser. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. They went back to the apostles and said, we got there and the body wasn't there. And these two men were shining like angels. And they said to us, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And notice what these incredible apostles said in verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Now, some people make a big deal because they didn't believe the reports of women. I don't think that's what it is. I think their spiritual blindness just overwhelmed them. But Peter got up. Now, remember Peter? He's the one with the foot-shaped mouth, the guy that's always saying the wrong thing. Well, it says, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. In other words, he surmised that Jesus had raised from the dead because he wasn't there. Now, in the parallel accounts, it tells us that John had actually beat him to the tomb, but, but Peter came behind him and burst into the tomb to see what was going on. 
And so he goes home, believing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And then we see him, the second scene is Jesus walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is a seven-mile walk. How long does it take to walk seven miles? Anybody know? Who's walked seven miles lately? Nobody walks seven miles lately? How long do you think it'd take? Two hours? Okay. It's a nice leisurely pace. And so he's walking seven, he walks seven miles with two disciples. Notice how this, uh, how this happens. Behold, two of them, that is two of the disciples, that is the community of the disciples. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other about, all, they were talking to each other, rather, about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, remember, these are, these are disciples of Jesus. They're not the apostles, but they're part of the community of faith. And Jesus walks up and he's traveling with them. But then notice what it says. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They, couldn't, they, didn't know, they didn't know who he was. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking very sad. One of them named Cleopas. We don't know who this is exactly. He was one of the disciples uh, of the discipleship party, the community of disciples. We, there's another place in the Bible that talks about a Cleopas, or Clopas, actually, and Mary. So possibly some have believed this is a husband and wife walking along. We don't know that. But one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, because Jesus asked him, what are you guys talking about? And so he answers him and he says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of all the things which have happened here in these days? Be like somebody visiting New York and say, I know, what's going on here anyway after the 9-11? Knocking down the Twin Towers. Can you imagine somebody walking around the city going, what's everybody talking about? What's happened here? That was kind of what, this is their attitude. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene. You know, you get it? They're talking to Jesus of Nazareth, and they say, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, you get that? We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some of the women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Of course, they didn't believe it. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women said, but him they did not see. And Jesus says to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What does he mean? The prophets prophesied that the Messiah was going to suffer and die before he was raised from the dead. Why don't you believe the prophets? 
Well, they're kind of like us. They read a lot of stuff in the Bible and don't have any memory of it whatsoever when it actually takes place. And Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that is the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Started with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. How would you like to be in that class? A seven-mile walk. You know the word... uh, the word for te- uh, the, the science of teaching is pedagogy. And pedagogos, was, it's describing somebody walking. You can hear it. It's like pedal. It means to walk, to take steps. So a teacher was called a pedagogos because that's how typically teaching took place. Well, you walked along and talked about the subject, whatever it was. And so Jesus is teaching them. But imagine this. It had to take at least a couple hours because he, tell, he takes them through the entire Old Testament and tells them what it said about him. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going farther. He acted like he wasn't going to stop. He was going to keep going. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening And the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at table with them, and this is what they did. They didn't sit on chairs. They reclined at table. The table would be real low, and they would lie down and hold themselves on one elbow. And with the other arm, they would hand, they would get the food. And when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread. And you know the kind of bread they had. It was flat bread. And you know what happens when you break flat bread? It cracks. You can hear it. I remember a story. Rosemary um, Miller, who was the wife of uh, Jack Miller, John C. Miller, and uh, he was a teacher at Westminster Seminary, a church planner, a pastor, wonderful guy. And uh, he was one time at a retreat, and he was, he was given the assignment to uh, serve the Lord's Supper. And what they had, as they, in the early church, this Lord's Supper, now what we do is we come together with these tiny little pieces of bread and tiny little cups so you don't have to get anybody's germs, and that's all we do. But they had a meal. They fixed a meal, and they reclined at table, and they took a meal, and then at the end of the meal, they would take communion. They would take the bread, break it. Everybody would take a piece of bread. They would take one cup. And everybody would take a drink from this cup. And Jesus told them what this represented, which is what this represents. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was given for us. And the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. That is this new kind of relationship that we have with God through Christ. Our relationship with God through Christ is one of total grace. That he, and grace includes the fact that God is working in the lives of believers to change the way they live. That's grace. Grace isn't he saves you and then lets you continue to be what you are right now. You know how sometimes we tell when we're witnessing to somebody, we say, uh, hey, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? You know a better question? If you found out you were going to live forever, what kind of a person would you want to become? 
This is what Jesus is producing in the lives of his disciples. He's changing our lives. One time a guy told me, he says, yeah, that's true, but sometimes the holiness that you see in people is imperceptible holiness. (laughs) But the fact is, he has taken on this task of conforming you into his own image through your relationship with him. Now, he's been walking with these people, this couple, and he gets to this destination. He goes in, and he breaks the bread. I was going to tell you about Rosemary Miller. Her husband was serving communion. He took the bread and cracked it, and she said, when I heard that sound, it was like the Lord opened my eyes to who Christ really was. She had been a professed believer but had never been born again. And she said, all of a sudden, my eyes were open, and I realized what Christ had done for me. And I received him as my Savior. Well, what happens here is he breaks the bread, and when he breaks the bread, something supernatural happens. This, this couple of people who had been walking with him for seven miles and didn't know who he was suddenly recognized him. Now, that's kind of like 2 Corinthians 6.4. It's what happened to you when you came to faith in Christ. This is what this is the way Paul puts it. He says, The God who said, Let light shine in darkness, cause the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your hearts. When does that happen? When you hear the gospel and you really hear it with ears that are awakened by the Holy Spirit, and you realize who Christ is, and you put your trust in him, and you begin to cling to him, and your eyes are open to who he really is. That's the work of God. Uh I don't know if you've ever tried this, but sometimes you ought to go out to the cemetery and witness to those people in the graves. And you'll be very frustrated because you'll never get any of them to respond. You know why we responded to the gospel, even though we were spiritually dead? is because the Holy Spirit of God opened our eyes to who Christ was, and we believed. And this is what was going on with these disciples of Jesus who didn't recognize him. When he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, now get this, these two disciples of Jesus who had walked seven miles with him and heard him explain how the Old Testament was the story of the Messiah. And this is what they say. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while we were speaking while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us were not our hearts burning see that's what happens when Christ opens your eyes and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 those who were with and those who were with him that is the 11, that's kind of a sad expression because there used to be 12, but now there's 11 because Judas had betrayed him. And Judas commits suicide. Now there's 11 apostles. And so he says, they are, they've gathered together along with the other disciples. This is the uh, two disciples who had walked with him for seven miles. After he had disappeared, they got up and they, they got, decided to go back to Jerusalem. And they went and found the di- apostles, the disciples of Jesus. And this is what they said to them. 
they said to them, The Lord has risen. He's really risen. And he has appeared to Simon. This is what actually the disciples are saying to this couple. And then they, this couple, began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So they witnessed to these apostles who had been told on several occasions, just in the, as in account in Luke, they were told on several occasions by Jesus himself that he was going to be crucified, and three days later he was going to raise from the dead. But they began to relate to him their experience and how they recognized him at the breaking of bread. He's alive. Now, the next scene is found in verses 36 through 49, and that is the disciples in Jerusalem because notice what happens. While they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst. Jesus stands in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. If you have a King James Bible, it says they thought they were seeing a ghost. The word is spirit. They thought they were seeing a disembodied spirit. How could Jesus be alive? How could he still be in his body? He's now in a glorified body. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? You see these scars? You see these holes in my hands? And in my feet, that is, it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Well, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. I love that, don't you? They couldn't believe it because of their joy and amazement. They're so beside themselves, it's overwhelming to them. And he said to them, have you something here to eat? (laughs) Have you something here to eat? You see how biblical it is to eat together? And Jesus said, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Let me tell you how this broiled fish is. I went to the Philippines a few years back, the first time I went over there. And what they served us for a meal, the first meal I had there was fish. And I looked at it, it was a whole fish with the eyeballs and everything. And then I cut off a little piece of the body away from the head, and I tasted it. It was cold. I thought, that, I thought maybe they made a mistake, but it wasn't. And that's probably what's going on here. They handed him a piece of broiled fish. It had been broiled and kept, and now he's going to eat it. And he took it and ate it, ate it before them. They saw him eat it. They saw him. They know he's not a spirit. He is, his, is in a resurrected body. Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You ought to memorize that verse. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, this, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. He said, if you had known the scriptures, if they had known the scriptures, they would have known that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All the nations. What is that? 
Where is all the where are all the nations? Wherever you go on this face of this earth, there's not one corner of this world, not one place in this world where you cannot go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say preach the gospel, I don't mean stand up and and talk real loud. I'm talking about sharing the truth, telling them the truth about Jesus Christ. And he says to them, you are witnesses of these things. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to the house of Cornelius, some Gentiles, and he says, when Jesus rose again, he appeared, not to everyone, but to those who are his witnesses. He appeared to his disciples, and then he sent them out to bear witness of his resurrection. Can you be a Christian without believing in the resurrection? No, you can't. By definition, a Christian, a believer, a disciple, that's the best word, that's the New Testament word, a disciple of Jesus Christ, first of all, comes to the truth, to believe the truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he's alive. Now, we sang that song, he lives, he lives, I know he lives. Uh, in fact, we, we sang those words, uh, he walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I'm his own. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. I've heard people criticize that song because it sounds like they're saying, they thought it was, that we were singing, well, I don't know if he actually physically raised from the dead, but he lives in my heart. That is, I have a memory of him. You know how that is? You go to a funeral and people get up and they talk about how this person's going to continue to live on in their memories. That's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he was in a resurrection body. And so, but it is true that we know he lives because he lives within our heart. Here's why. The Bible says when you put faith in Jesus Christ, he comes to live within you. In fact, this is the way it's said by John in 1 John 5. He says, this is the testimony. He's talking about the testimony of God about his son. He says, this is the testimony that God has given to you eternal life. And this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has the life. And whoever does not have the son does not have the life. So when Jesus comes to live within us through faith, and he actually comes and joins himself to us in a way that we have this relationship with him that affects us, in all kinds of ways, he brings his life within him. You say, what's so important about that? Let me tell you what's important about it. John 17, 3 says, this is what eternal life is for. Why would God give people eternal life now? It doesn't just mean you're going to live forever. It means you have a certain quality of life. You are going to live forever. But what it, what it means is it's God's life implanted in you when you receive Christ. Why would he want to give you eternal life? Why would he send his son into the world to die for our sins and then join us to him by means of the Spirit so that Christ comes to live within us and he brings his life so that now we have eternal life? If you're a Christian, if you're a a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And you know why he wanted you to have eternal life? Here's why. Because in John 17, 3, Jesus said this as he prayed to the Father. This is the purpose of eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The purpose of eternal life is so that you could know, personally know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is very interested in you being reconciled to him. If you're today and you have never believed on Christ, this is why it's so important to God why he would send his son into the world like this. 
is because he wants you to come to know who he is, to experience fellowship with him. I think about this, this road to Emmaus and Jesus walking with these two disciples and talking to them and telling them how the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, spoke of him. I would have loved to be in that class, wouldn't you? To hear Christ tell from the Scriptures who he is and what he came into the world for. Let me put it in shorthand. He came into the world to reconcile you to God. To reconcile you to the Father. And so this is why it is so important. Now, the the fourth scene that we have here is in verses 50 through 53. Let me read down to, let me read the rest of this text. In 44, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. You know, that's, that's a great verse to pray. Please open my mind to the Scriptures. I knew a guy, L.J. Howard. Uh, he was a father of a, a pastor that, church I used to go to, and his dad, L.J. Howard, he was an iron worker, like Steve. He worked on bridges and things like that. And he became a believer. And he was, he was, uh, he was one of the most wonderful followers of Christ I ever met. He was an old man. He was about my age now, back when I was in my 30s. And uh, I, I got a kick out of this. He told me, when I was talking to him, he was telling me about He's, he was working in a scripture trying to figure it out. And I, and I was kind of wondering what kind of commentaries he had. And so I was asking him, he said, he had one one-volume commentary. I forget what it was, one of the old classics. And he said, but what I do is when I get to a place in the scriptures that I don't understand, I found this is the best way. I start praying and asking God to open my eyes to the meaning of this text. And I find that he always does. And he lets me understand it. I'm telling you, this guy, he, he knew the word of God. But it was supernatural because this, the God of the universe opened his eyes to the scripture. And he prayed for it. And that's why I'm saying it would really be good for you to pray that God would open your eyes to the scriptures. That you could understand what they're saying. This past week at our house fellowship, uh, I taught on, uh, we, we were going through a study together on, on uh, Romans 9, and it was kind of heavy because it's really strong in that chapter about the sovereignty of God. And I understand that this is really disturbing to a lot of people, to find out that God is in total control. I mean, that's something that's hard to swallow. God is in total control. But I understand how hard that is for, for us to accept apart from God's speaking to our hearts and helping us to see how beautiful this is. I, I shared with them an incident in a class I was teaching. This couple was there, and they didn't like this doctrine at all, this husband and wife. They held to a theology that's called open theology. That is that God doesn't know the future. He just has to figure it out as he goes. And so I, I was talking with them in class, and I finally said to her, how long have you guys been married? And she told me, and I said, well, what if you found out that a year before you ever talked to your husband, he had already decided he was going to marry you? 
that he saw you and he had love for you and he decided he was going to pursue you until he won your heart. I thought she'd say, oh, that'd be wonderful. She said, I would kill him. That's horrible. See, some people are mad because God set his love on them before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 says. But I do understand, I really do understand that you can't stuff this down people's throats. That sometimes, I can remember my first hearing of it, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Because I was a third generation Christian. And I know the reason I got saved was because my grandfather and my father and my mother and my brother were all believers. And so I just, by osmosis, I became a Christian. So when this guy tried to say in this class, Dale Johnson's taught that, this teacher taught that, uh, he basically just quoted Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, God blessed us with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to become holy and blameless. And I thought, I don't believe that. But then it hit me, oh, you don't believe the Bible, huh? And after a few days, I just kept eating at me until finally it became beautiful to me. It became one of the most comforting things I'd ever heard. You mean, you mean to tell me that I have a relationship with God because he decided? Because he set his love on me? Yeah. Because, see, here's what happens with me. I get cold and hot and cold and hot. I'm sure you're not like that, but I've been like that over my Christian life. I've been saved a few years, about 50, about 60 years. And I've had those times when I was just on my own and want to do my own thing and didn't care what God thought. And there's other times I've been red hot, a disciple of Jesus. But I was so glad when I finally realized it was God who set his love on me. It was God who came after me. And it regenerated me and gave me a new life and a new mind and a new heart. And so it's good to pray this, that, you're, that God would open your minds to the understanding of the Scripture. And so Jesus tells them, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Do you know what the promise of his Father is? Anybody know what that is? What is the promise of the Father? It's okay to answer if you know. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. He's called the promise of the Father. The the Father promised to give his Spirit through the Son to us. And we've received the Spirit. And the Spirit resides in the believer. That's the reason once you come to faith in Christ, your life begins to change. Because the influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, he begins to affect you. Now notice what happens. This is the This is the fourth scene, the last scene of the chapter, verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany. That's where the Mount of Olives is. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. (laughs) He blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. I want you to notice something here. This is what happens. This is the result of being blessed by Jesus Christ. You have joy. And you worship him. 
And so he says, they were, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So what happens when you have great joy like this? You know, if, you know uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, Peter's writing to people who have never seen Jesus, but he had. But he writes to him, he says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. But you know what happens when you have joy? You begin to praise God. Listen to what it says. It says, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. <sighs> praising God. I remember in, our, in a prayer meeting we used to have, and... Uh, Somebody actually suggested to me, why don't, we, uh, why don't we spend a little while in the beginning just praising God instead of asking for something? And so I said, let's do that. Let's just praise God and not ask for anything. Let's just give him praise for what he's done for us. You know what happened? What happened was the second person that prayed began to ask him. It's so hard to praise him, isn't it? No, it's not if you have joy. You know, when the joy of the Lord is filling your heart, you can't help but praise him. Now, praising him, I could give you the Greek word if you want me to, but that's not the point. The point is, is that praising him is lifting up your heart and your voice in praise of the God who has sent his son to the world to die for you so that you could come into the kingdom of God and be under the rule of Christ and live your life for all eternity in praise and adoration of the living God. Father, Son, and Spirit. So the reason, if you want to know why you don't praise God very much, it seems to be, to me, it seems like the clear implication is because I'm lacking joy. When I lack joy, I lack praise. Now, the thing to do is not to, to praise Him in order to get joy. The, the point is, is to begin to think about what has God done for you? What has God done for you? You know, we should, we're told, Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, which means to practice, to fulfill all that I've commanded you. You get what that is? Discipleship, making disciples, isn't giving people a whole bunch of facts. I've tried that. I give you 99 things about the hypostatic union of Christ. Now, you know what discipleship is? It's teaching people how to obey the commands of Christ. Love your enemies. You know, commands like that. Love your enemies. Do good to those who want to harm you. Um, bless instead of curse. Bless those that, that you are giving you a bad time instead of cursing them. Those are crazy things, aren't they? And he's given all kinds of commands about how we should live. And what discipleship is, disciple-making, is, is apprenticeship. It's having somebody follow you around and do what you do. Boy, that's scary, isn't it? That's what discipleship is. It's having people follow you around and do what you do as a follower of Jesus Christ. We have a living Savior. One of the implications of that is that he's the king of glory. He's the king of the kingdom of God. And we live under his rule. And here's a wonderful thing. Everybody would like to have the perfect ruler. 
in, in every nation. We got people who want, you know, there are people who want to get rid of their, their leader and get another one. And we have revolutions of all kinds. Everybody wants to get the right ruler. Let me tell you who the ruler of the kingdom of God is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, you can rest in his leadership. You can rest in the fact that he is the king of glory. And that if you follow him, you will find life indeed. You'll experience abundant life if you follow Christ. If he becomes the one that you follow. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.